uh, we will be uh, reading the, the chapter in just a few moments. The title is The God Who Rules, and as you're turning there, uh, so Psalm 137 is a text about God's people in exile. It's about them in the time of Daniel when they're in Babylon. And so God's people, as we know, we're in Daniel, have been uh, destroyed by the Babylonians. They've come, they've taken some into exile. And so this, Psalm 137, is a song that comes from exile. And verse 4, there's a question. And the question is, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So their question is, okay, we've been taken captive, Babylon is now over us, King Nebuchadnezzar rules us, it doesn't look like God is present and ruling, how can we still praise him? And what do you think, that's a pretty relevant song for us too, isn't it, or question? Like, how can we praise God in exile? Remember, 1 Peter, throughout the New Testament, talks about the church as in exile, how can we as a church, on the outside, in a sense, of society, how do we stand firm? How can we be faithful and obedient when it looks like God is not in control? How do we stand firm in hostile places in this world where we can be killed for our faith? How can we stand firm when, when so often, if we do stand firm for our faith, we're called bigots and we're called intolerant? How do we stand firm when we might lose our, our family, our friends, our job, our lives for the sake of the faith? In fact, I've been asked uh, by, by several people, you know, why would you go to Lebanon? Why, why would you go to Lebanon? And just so you know, if you don't know, we're going to Lebanon in June on a mission trip. And some people say, why would you do that? And, and in that question is the underlying, that doesn't seem like a safe idea. That doesn't seem right. But yet God's word says go into all the world and make disciples. So how do we stand firm when, when there are areas, when there's places in this world where it's hard to go to? Um, Daniel's going to answer this question for us. And what's neat is he answers it in chapter 4, and he does it not by his pen, but by the pen of King Nebuchadnezzar. What we're going to see is King Nebuchadnezzar has, has basically written this. Now, it may have been modified or something by Daniel, but it comes largely from the pen of Daniel. And so how do we stand firm in this world as exiles? A pagan king is going to answer this for us and so one thing we do here is we stand when we read God's word so I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to stand we do so because we believe God's word is inspired it comes with his full authority now I know that we are reading let's see 37 verses so that's a lot if you need to sit down if you need to go up and down that's okay um, but just so you know we do there's power in the word of God so I've wrestled with and should we really read every verse and like all 37? It's so good though. Like what verse would I leave out? And this is why we're here. It's for the word of God. And so I, I know some of you might sometimes wrestle with, you know, are we really going to read every word of every chapter of Daniel? Yes, we are. And so, uh, so I, come ready to stand. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. 
I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belshazzar, after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of my holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the field and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentences by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. Is it, a, it, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my, my, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for this text. I thank you for your inspired word that, God, we might know more about you. And Lord, I pray as, as we look at your text today, at this narrative that, God, your spirit would give us wisdom and understanding. God, by your grace, help us to see the true meaning of this text. And may we not just be um, cognitively challenged, but, God, may you transform us with the knowledge of your word. Lord, inform our hearts and transform our hearts that we would live in submission to you as the God who rules over all. And may we see the fact that you rule, the fact that you are God and that you are king, that you are the most high. May we see that as a blessed truth that affects every single person and everything in all the earth. And may we rejoice in your rule. God, help us to rejoice today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so, when we come to a text like this, it's easy to want to just jump into the dream. It's easy for us to want to go, all right, what does this mean? And let's look at, you know, a king and a tree and it's chopped down and becomes an animal. And we immediately kind of want to jump into those, what we might even say, mysterious types of part, mysterious parts. But 
we can't do that first. There's clear things that, as even this is being written, that uh, Daniel and that Nebuchadnezzar wants us to understand. So for one, let's just look at verses one and two, because there we see really the purpose of what we're about to read. And if you look at it, we see who the author is, King Nebuchadnezzar. We see who the recipients are, to all peoples, nations, and languages. So who's this written to? It's written to everyone, whether you're Jew Gentile, however you want to classify yourself, it's written to you. It's written to us. Uh, we are the recipients of this letter. And then what we see is that it is a message of peace. Peace be multiplied to you. So he says, I have a message. It's for everyone who lives. And it's a message of peace. And if you understand this, your peace will multiply. And what's it about? Well, it's going to be a personal testimony. He says, verse 2, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for me. So what's it about? Is it about Daniel, or is it about King Neb, or is it about God? It's careful here, because we all want to go through, well, it's all about Nebuchadnezzar, right? No, the thing is about God. He's like, I want to show you the signs and wonders of God. I want to show you what he has done for me. So the message of this is not about King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's about God, who he is and what he has done and the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And then so we say, well, well, what is it that he wants us to know? Well, verse 3, if you notice, your words probably look a little different on the page there. They might be indented. They might be italicized. They're set apart. There's a doxology right there. Um, not only is there a doxology here, but if you look in verses 34 and 35, those verses are probably set aside also in your text, probably italicized or indented, or they'd look a little different than the rest of the text around it. Well, there's a doxology, and so there's a doxology at the beginning, and there's a doxology at the end of the chapter. So they're bracketing, they're bookends of the chapter that Nebuchadnezzar wants us to see. Now, some of you may not know what a doxology is. I didn't really know what a doxology was for a long time. It's one of those things that we hear. Sometimes there's a song that comes up and it says doxology. So doxology is really a praise to God. And it's a praise about who God is and what he has done. Now the important thing is, is when we come across doxologies in the Bible, which they, the Bible has many, many doxologies, they are not random uh, praises to God. I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar isn't about to write about one thing. Then he goes, just on a side note, I just want to praise God about some things over here real quick. And then he jumps back into the story. The doxologies praise God for who he is and what he has done. And then the context around the doxology serves to prove why God is praiseworthy. It's proving the praises that we read in the doxology. And so here, we have a doxology in the beginning and doxology at the end. In a moment, we'll look at them. They're very, very similar. The one at the end um, just expands on the one in the beginning. Everything in between the doxology is written for the purpose of understanding the doxology. Does that make sense? Doxologies praise God for who he is, what he has done. They come from the context. And because we have the bookends of this chapter are doxologies, everything in between is meant to show us the truth of these doxologies. So as we go through here, what, what Nebuchadnezzar wants us to see is the truth of this doxology. So what is the doxology? So let's just look, verse 3. 
How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. So we see God has done might and wonder. And then we come a little more specific. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So what do we have? We have a God who does mighty things. He has a kingdom that lasts forever, and his rule never ends. So it's an everlasting kingdom, everlasting rule. Now let's go to verse 34 and 35. The first two lines are, are almost verbatim. They're actually just switched a little bit. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So again, the rule is forever. The inhabitants, um, the king, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So again, we have a rule and a kingdom that lasts forever. And then we expand on it from what we saw in verse 3. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. So compared to this God who rules all the inhabitants of the earth, they're insignificant, they're incomparable, they're unable to be compared to his rule. Um, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So this is a God whose rule goes forward in earth and heaven, and he does whatever he wants. Whatever he wants in heaven, on earth, he does what he wants. And then, well, does he really do what he wants? Well, then we have the last verses of, or last words of 35. None can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? So the whole picture that we have here is that we have a God, the God of Israel reigns eternally supreme. That's the God that, that Israel has, and that's who Nebuchadnezzar wants us to understand he's now going to tell us about. It's this God who reigns eternally supreme. No one can thwart his plans. No one can resist him. No one can impede his will, either in heaven or on earth. This is the God that Nebuchadnezzar now wants us to understand. And so it's with this lens that we read this chapter. Does that help? Like that's how we come into this text. And so uh, what I want to do is just kind of recount the dream and the interpretation, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But let's just make sure we understand it. Verse 4, everything is good in the life of Nebuchadnezzar at work and at home, it's a good life. That's what it means by house and by palace. And the word prospering is the word that would also be used uh, for thick foliage of a tree. So you can kind of see how that's connecting to the dream that's going to be explained in a few moments about the giant tree that's chopped down. And so, uh, verse 5, King Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream. Chapter 2, we came across his first dream. And if you remember, in, in Babylon, dreams were very important. They had a whole dreamology system. They had magicians and Chaldeans and all these wise people that studied dreams. And they had this whole grid that if you dream this, and this is what this means. And so we see in verses 6 through 7 that he calls, Nebuchadnezzar calls all the Babylonian wise men. And once again, they're unable to answer the dream uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has. And part of us might wonder, well, why does he call them again instead of Daniel? Daniel was the only one who answered the last one. Why don't we just go straight to Daniel every time? Most likely what we're meant to see is just the limited power of, of human wisdom here. Repeatedly throughout Daniel, we see that human wisdom is not enough to understand that of God. We must come to him with faith, uh, and that is where wisdom really comes in. And so that is what Daniel shows us. So in verse 8, Daniel comes before the king, and notice he is called the chief of the magicians. Three times, King Nebuchadnezzar will also say in verse 8, 9, and 18 that the spirit of the holy gods is with Daniel. So we, we got to understand, 
King Neb still sees Daniel as kind of the exalted wise man, and he just has more of the pagan deities with him. At this moment, we are not seeing that King Nebuchadnezzar has come to faith, uh, but rather King Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel. He's just above the rest of these guys. The gods work more through him. Verses 10 through 8, the king gives him the dream. There's a giant tree. It reaches up to heaven. It's seen all over the earth. It's beautiful. It provides food and shelter for all birds and beasts of the earth. And so this is with the turning point now. Verse 13, a watcher appears from heaven. Now, is the watcher God? Maybe. Does it represent God? Maybe that's how we're supposed to see that. Uh, it's not 100% clear, but somehow this watcher is either God or he's representing God. And he comes... And he says, chop it down. And all that's going to be left is a stump. And then verse 16, we see that the metaphor changes a little bit from a tree to an animal. You, you notice that? No longer are we talking about a tree, but now, now we're talking about an animal. And it says, um, let his mind be changed from man's, let a beast's mind be given to him. And seven periods of time, watch over him. In verse 19, Daniel begins to interpret and he says in verse 22 that the tree is you, king, and he is the great king of all the earth. Now, I just want to give just a little bit of knowledge of Babylon. Babylon was a city like no other. I mean, this was a major uh, city that came, and, they, uh, and, the, and Babylon ruled all other nations. They came and conquered them. And the city itself was amazing. The walls were 75 feet thick. They were 300 feet tall. Now just think about it. There ain't no cranes back then. They're 300 feet tall, 75 feet thick, and inside that wall was another wall, almost as big, just a little narrower at certain parts. Um, it was 480 furloughs around the perimeter of it, which means nothing to you and me. But if you know a furlough is 220 yards, and that means it's 60, it's 60 miles around the perimeter of this, of this city. That's a big city, thinking that they didn't have cars and cranes and all those things back then. This is, uh, this, the wall was so thick that they said they could have a chariot with four horses. I think it's at least four horses pulling it. And on the wall, they could fully turn the chariot around on top of that wall. That's how big this wall is. This is. They had golden statues all throughout the city. They had the hanging gardens. One of the seven wonders of the world was located here. And so when we read that Babylon is great and that King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 25 um, or wherever it is, verse uh, 30, that he says, man, is this not a great kingdom that I built? It is a great kingdom. This is a kingdom like you will not find anywhere else. And then what we see, though, is that the king will lose his kingdom, and he will become an animal for seven periods of time. So why is this going to happen, though? I mean, why is it going to happen? What is the point of, of Nebuchadnezzar with all this greatness, and he's going to lose it? Is it... Is it because pride comes before the fall? Proverbs 16, 18. And that what we read, pride comes before the fall. Even the chapter ends with, you know, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Is that the point of the chapter? 
you might come to that, and that's certainly a truth that we see in the chapter, but it's probably not the main point. Is it the salvation of King Nebuchadnezzar? Now, there's some people who don't think he's saved. I think he is saved based upon how he praises God at the end and uh, the way he changes from this way of talking about God to now he acknowledges he's the most high God. I think he has come to salvation. Is that the point? I think it's a truth that we see, but I think it would be too narrow to say that's the only, or that's the major point that Daniel wants us to understand here. But there's at least four verses that tell us what the point is. So I want to read these verses, and we'll brief comment on each one, and we'll see if we come to the same conclusion. Verse 17. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So according to that, what's the point? That everyone know that there's a Most High God, he rules, and he gives power to whom he will. Verse 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. What's the point? God rules, he gives power to whom he wants. Verse 26, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. What's the point? Heaven rules, you don't. Verse 32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. What's the point? God rules, he gives power to whom he wants. You see the point? We have a God who rules eternally supreme. He rules and he gives power to whom he desires. But there's only one God, there's only one ultimate ruler. And this is what we see is the message of the entire Bible, is that there is a God and he rules. Just think through a little bit of the story of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks creation into existence. He forms man with his hand. In Genesis chapter 7, we're told God's going to flood the earth. And he says, for 40 days and nights, it will rain. And guess what? On the 41st day, it stopped raining. God's in control of the rain and how much rain falls. Genesis 11, all the peoples of the earth have come together to build the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God's decree to spread over the earth. What does God do? Changes languages and spreads them across the earth. None can resist his will. Genesis 19, God rains down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities are known um, in rebellion against the rule of God, and they're a prefigurement of a shadow of God's judgment that we see at the end of the Bible. And we see that none can rebel against him without judgment. Uh, Genesis 21, God opens Sarah's womb. Sarah is the wife of Abraham. She's unable to have children until God, by his grace, opens her womb. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we see this barrenness take place. And often, uh, God will let these women get quite old, past childbearing age, and then he blesses them so that it's obvious that God is the one who has blessed them and given them birth. So we see that God controls life. He gives life. In fact, Chris, when he preached a couple of weeks ago, on, and he mentioned Psalm 139, that God is the one who forms the child in the womb. He's the one who not only forms them, but also plans out his days before the child is ever born. As we continue in the story, we see God brings Israel out of Egypt. If you remember the, the ten plagues that he brings up down on Egypt. And in Romans, we're given a little commentary on what happened in Exodus. Romans 9.17 says this. For this purpose, I have raised you, God has raised Pharaoh up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So here's Pharaoh. He thinks he's God of the world. He thinks he's the ultimate king. And basically God says, no, you're actually a pawn with a crown on your head, and you're only going to accomplish what I want you to accomplish. Again, we have this God that rules over all things. And even through people who rebel against him, he accomplishes his will. Then God parts the Red Sea, stands the waters up on the side. They walk across on dry ground, crashes upon the Egyptians, showing that God has given his judgment against them. Later, when Israel crosses the Promised Land, do you remember the name of the other sea or the other river that was, that was split? Hey, good job, the Jordan. And again, the water, the ground is what? It's dry when they cross through. Again, just showing God's not only control of of certain elements, but he's in control of every element in creation. In Joshua chapter 10, we see God's people, they're in the promised land, and there's a host of armies that have come against him. A mighty force, a mighty force that we're, as we read in Joshua 10, you're meant to go, Israel's surely going to be destroyed here, but God stands, makes the sun stand still, so he controls the cosmos, stands it still until Israel has defeated all of the enemies that day. And actually before that, when they enter into the promised land, do you remember the name of the mighty city that they see? The name is Jericho. And do you remember? Good job, James. That's why he's a member. Um, And do you remember the battle plan? I want you to march around with trumpets. Surely, I mean, that's the way we want to do it, right? All right, we'll send the toughest people with the biggest flutes, and we'll make them go around, and they'll blow it, and then we'll scream real loud, because that always works. And what happens, though? The walls come tumbling down. You're all singing that in your head right now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I don't sing, so I won't do that for you. Um, well, what's the point? God rules. And he controls all things, and as his people trust in him, they continually experience that rule. Isaiah chapter 44, in verse 6, it says this. God is speaking. He says, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. The whole testimony of Scripture is there is one God. He rules. There is no other God. As we move into the New Testament, we see Jesus coming. And he preaches the kingdom of God. And in Mark chapter 4 and 5, there's this neat section where Jesus, he's on a boat. There's a big storm. Do you remember how the storm stops? Jesus stands up and says, peace. And it stops. Also in that section, we see that Jesus casts out a legion of demons out of a man. Not even a legion of demons can resist the power of Christ. He heals a sick woman who for 12 years has been unable to be healed, but by merely touching Jesus, she experiences healing all over her body, and then Jesus goes and raises a dead girl. What we see is that God is in control of nature, of the spiritual realm, of all sickness and diseases, and even death. Matthew chapter 6, we read God feeds the birds and and clothes the fields and the flowers. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, we read that God knows the most insignificant of animals, even things like a sparrow. And we're told not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the sovereign decree of God. 
Psalm 121 verse 4 says God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is the watcher, whether that's him or not in this text. He is the watcher who sees all things. Nothing passes by him without his notice. In Zechariah 4.10, we are told that his eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. The message of the Bible is that there is one God and he reigns eternally supreme over everything. So that's what we have here in Daniel chapter 4. He's saying, this is a God who reigns sovereign, and it's the message of all Scripture. But that's not all that Daniel 4 teaches. Go down to verse 29 and 30. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of of my majesty. So because of sin, we're all like King Nebuchadnezzar. So we can't distance ourselves from Nebuchadnezzar. That's what we want to do. We're glad we're not that guy. But that's who we're meant to see ourselves as, a guy who lives in rebellion to God, who looks at all of his life and says, this is what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished And when we resist or deny the rule of God, the Bible calls that rebellion against God. And we're told that this is how we're all born. We're not born neutral and then like we make a bad decision and we become rebellious. We're born rebellious. We're born with hard, rebellious hearts to God. We're born with the inclination to resist the kingdom and the rule of God. We're born with wanting to exert and exalt our will in our kingdom. Calvin said, we are idol-making factories at our core. It's who we are. We love worshiping things other than God. And in our sin, we can worship just about anything there is. So our hearts are no different than King. Our our hearts echo the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I mean, think about it. The reason we get angry at people is not normally because it's a righteous anger and we're upset that somehow they're defaming the name of God. But why do we get upset at people? Because they violate our kingdoms. They're not acknowledging our greatness, our rule, our might. They're not respecting us the way that we want to be respected. And when that happens, we begin to see people as obstacles. Look, when we see, when we exalt our kingdom, when that becomes our primary Um, object of desire, our comfort, our kingdom, our desires, our joy. Anyone who impedes that becomes our obstacle. And that's often who we are then angry at. In fact, I would encourage you to think. Think of the people that you, you struggle in anger with. Think of those who you struggle with. Yeah, sometimes I gossip about them. Sometimes I slander them. And you might struggle with anger and bitterness towards them. Is it because they've defamed the name of God, or is it because they're not doing what you want? Is it because they're not simply recognizing you and your greatness? I mean, think about it. Why do we get upset? Is it really because they've just sinned against God, or because they didn't respect me? I'm a, I was down south this week in California. I'm on the executive committee of our denomination, and that means I go sit and I, I'm in meetings and it's really amazing. Um, actually, the, the meetings aren't always that exciting. 
Uh, but, you know, we have to take care of different things, different constitutional things, just making sure that we're kind of making the right decisions. And during that time, there was one issue that came up, and th- there was an idea of how to handle it was put forth. And at that moment, like, lights just came on in my head, and I was like, I, I have a much better idea. And honestly, I did have a better idea. I mean, I really think my way was really good there. And so I share my idea. I'm like, look, this is what I think. And I gave reasons. I gave support at that moment. It, it allowed a little more conversation. And then someone else kind of pushed this view over here. And they ended up going with that view. I was sitting there. I was like, are you kidding me? That idea? Like, that idea was nowhere close to my idea. I mean, honestly, when I gave my idea, what should have happened is all the other ideas should have bowed down before my idea. And in fact, there should have been, like, a moment of silence taken, like, just among the group going, dude, that, that was good. We're just, we're just going to sit here and honor your idea for a few moments because we didn't think that way. And I'm like, I know. That's why I'm here, to fix everything and to make everything perfect. But that didn't happen. But that's how my mind works, right? Like, I hope that doesn't, well, I hope it does, like, burst your bubble. If you think, like, oh, he's the pastor. He reads the Bible a lot and he prays. Like, surely he doesn't sin like I do. I probably sin way different ways than you and greater ways than you do in many ways. So if that burst your bubble, that's probably good. Um, but think about it. What makes us upset about things? Even in this issue on being down south, there's nothing going against the glory of God. It was against my glory. And even that little thing, I was sitting there and I was like, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. God rules, it's okay. But you know, I'm like wrestling with that truth at that moment. But what makes us upset? If you just kind of want to do a little diagnosis on yourself, think about just the people in your life. And you can think through, am I angry with them? Why am I angry with them? Most likely, 99% chance, it's because they're, they're somehow not respecting and doing the things that you want. Another diagnosis, diagnosis tool you can take is, uh, are you praying for them? People you don't pray for, sometimes you don't like. Or, or you might be praying for them, but think about the content of your prayers. <laughs> that might let you know what you think about them, too. God changed them. Man, they're a horrible person. If they were more like me, I mean, so sometimes you might be praying for them, but you're really not praying for them the way God would have you pray for them. Um, In this world, we constantly face just the desire to exalt our own kingdoms. Again, two weeks ago was Sanctity of Life, so we preached on abortion, um, and, and Chris was up here, he was preaching that week, and he gave a statistic and this is a statistic that comes from the ch- pro-choice movement. So it wouldn't be from pro-lifers. This comes from, pro-choice actually comes from the very doctors who uh, perform abortions as they do surveys on everyone that comes in. 95% of abortions are done for convenience. It's not because there's a risk. It's not because it's a health issue. It's for convenience. Do you know what that tells us? It's the protection of my kingdom. This child, if he comes in my life, he's going to disrupt my world and make me do things I don't want to do. Therefore, I exalt my kingdom over that. And I refuse to let that happen. If that means the death of an innocent child, sure, I'll do that. When we look at this world, uh, divorce 
is so often just the cause of it's my kingdom versus their kingdom. No, it's my way. It must be done my way. That's why we have divorce in this world. In fact, homosexuality, when it comes down to, I will define who I am, and I will redefine marriage. All of a sudden we're saying, no, God, you don't define me. I will take your place. I will become God. I will define who I am and how I will live. When we watch the news and we are full of anxiety, why is it? It's because we wrestle with the very rule of God. In fact, it goes to why I was asked, you know, why would we go to Lebanon? Look, it's, it's a, many Muslims there. There's many difficulties that are there. Is this really a safe place to go? Which I responded and said, well, God, doesn't God calls to go everywhere? Which they respond and say, but we got to be safe, and, and we want to make sure we don't endanger anyone. And I said, but God has called us anywhere, to go everywhere to proclaim his name. Who are we trusting if we don't go? And I said, well, we want to be safe. And so, again, I repeat the question in different ways, but it comes down, well, who are we trusting? And ultimately it comes down to, well, we want to we wanna make sure we're in control. We want to make sure we're safe. And the best way to do that is for us to make the decisions on how we want to live versus God has called us to go, therefore we go where he leads us. Um, and think about it. Is this not what we wrestle with on a regular basis? The exaltation of my kingdom, my rule, my power, versus struggling with trusting in God. And so I just want to bring up three points real quick, and hopefully we'll go through them fairly quick. Um, number one, God rules over all individuals. That's something that we might all theologically know, but sometimes we leave it out there in this abstract realm, and it's not affecting us. But notice, King Nebuchadnezzar is affected by God's sovereignty. He is a giant tree that's chopped down and turned into um, an animal-like person. And in verse 2, he is praising God because God is sovereign. God's sovereignty has come into King Nebuchadnezzar's life and turned his life upside down. Listen, because God is sovereign and none can stay his hand, he can graciously crush our kingdoms and bring us to our knees so that we would acknowledge his rule. Now think about this. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the pagan deity, the, the pagan ruler who has come against Jerusalem. He has destroyed Jerusalem, decimated the temple. In fact, they surrounded Jerusalem, cut off all food supply so that the people, Israel, resulted to cannibalism inside of it because of what the king was doing. He, he has no problem throwing people in the fire. We saw that in chapter 3. He has no problem chopping people's heads off if they can't do what he wants. We saw that in chapter 2. Like This is the pagan king who now is praising God because he is sovereign. Because God's grace has come upon him and crushed his kingdom of self so that he would accurately see I'm not actually in control. I'm not actually in charge of all that I think I am. Look, there's good news here. What it means is, is that there's no heart that is too hard. Have you ever talked to someone and they said, or have you ever looked at someone and said, you know, I don't think they could become king, or I don't think they could become a Christian. They're, they're too sinful. Look at the things they do. Man, there's no way that person would ever believe in Jesus. But what do we see? 
King Nebuchadnezzar comes to Christ. Paul, in the New Testament, he kills Christians, and then he becomes a Christian, and he plants churches and tells people about Jesus and risks his own life as a Christian. So no heart is too hard for God's sovereignty, and no sin is too great. Do you understand that? There's no sin is too great. Do you ever look, and do you ever wrestle with, but could God forgive this sin? Could God really forgive me for doing this? But God has sent forth his son Jesus to die on a cross, and he raises that by the power of Christ, all who come to him will be forgiven. So when we say, well, I don't know if God could actually forgive this sin, what we're saying, this sin is actually greater than the power of Jesus' blood. If only Jesus was stronger, but he's not. But do you see what we're doing? We're all of a sudden saying, God's rule, his power, his throne isn't big enough. But the truth of Scripture is that God is. And because he has sent forth his son Jesus, all who come and confess before him can be saved. That's so one thing. Another thing we learn here is God is more interested in our salvation than our immediate comfort. God is willing to crush our kingdoms to bring us to greater knowledge of himself. And, and I think it's one thing we see that to unbelievers, because that is the path of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever coming to Christ. So if you're a Christian here, you had to experience at some point, you do not rule, you are not in control, and that there is a God, and he rules. And unless if we submit to him and believe in him, we will be under his judgment. Every Christian must acknowledge that God rules, and they are to be in submission to that. But we're continuing to learn this even as Christians. We must understand that God will sometimes bring difficult things into our lives even as Christians so that we will continue to grow in understanding his rule and his grace. And then just notice, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, the message that, uh, the truth of what God did for King Nebuchadnezzar, it's a message for all people also. What God is doing in your life is not just for you. Do you know that? It's not just for you. Sometimes we question, God, how can this be good? Because we're thinking, it doesn't meet my immediate good. But yet God is working not only for our good, but also for the good of others. And while God might not be for our immediate comfort, he is for our comfort, right? In fact, he's more for our comfort and our joy than we are. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselor and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now, we know as Christians that when we come to know Jesus, that doesn't mean all of a sudden we get bigger houses, bigger paychecks, and everything goes well, right? In fact, sometimes it seems like the opposite happens. But what do we know? We know that we have now become an inheritor with Christ and all that Christ has, we now have. All the blessings of God, he now shares with us as a child of God, as a son of God. So all the favor that God has for his son Jesus, now he has for us. And we are told that in the new heavens and new earth, we will reign and rule with him. In Revelation 3, we're told that we will sit on the throne with Jesus and his father. Like, does that sound like he's holding anything back? And so while life sometimes gets difficult here because he's saying, I really want you to understand my rule and my power and my grace, which is not only good for you, but good for others. He said, I'm going to give you comfort, and I will give you blessing, and I will give you joy. And you have all spiritual blessings now. And there's a day coming where you will not only experience the spiritual blessings, but it will be matched with physical blessings, and it will be for eternity. And those are joys and blessings that nothing in this world can compare to. So don't think God is not for our joy. He is for our joy far more than we are. 
So God rules over all individuals. There's no one that by his grace and his power he cannot bring to him. There's no one he cannot use for his glory. Second one, and I'll just um, spend a moment on this, God rules over all time. We see throughout seven periods of time are going to take place. We've had verse 16, verse 23, verse 32, verse 34, at the end of the days. We see that the decree was set. It will be for seven periods of time. Now, some believe that seven years. Some believe that just means a perfect allotted period of time. It actually doesn't matter, and really there's probably very little different. It wouldn't matter what, where we land on that interpretation. It's not going to affect the text. What we see in the text is that for a period of time that God has ordained, this will take place. So God has marked the beginning and the end of this trial. And God rules over all of it. So just know, and we see that truth throughout all Scripture, wherever you're at right now, God rules right now in your life and in this time. And if you're going through a difficult period of time, God rules in that difficult period of time. He has set the beginning and the end of that trial, and he knows it, and it will come to an end, either in in a time in this earth or at his coming or at your death, where then you're brought into his presence. But God has ordained the beginning and end of all trials in our life. And he is sovereign, and he rules over every one of them. And that would be a whole other sermon that we could go. But last one, I just want to point this one out. God rules over all kingdoms. And we have to see that. God rules over all kingdoms. And we see that most clearly as we move into the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus comes to battle the most powerful ruler on earth. Not King, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Herod, not Pilate, not Nero, but Satan himself. In fact, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God, what happens? Do you remember? Satan comes to go out into the wilderness. And there's a battle that takes place. And Satan says, bow before me and I'll give you everything. You don't even need to go to the cross. We'll take care of it all right here. And Jesus responds by saying, we're to worship no one other than God. He continually relies upon the word of God. And what's neat, as Jesus begins to proclaim the word of God, we see that demons in the spiritual realm not only responds to him, but it responds to all who follow him. Jesus sends out 72 disciples. They come back. As they come back, they're like, even the demons believed, or even the demons obeyed us in your name, Jesus. And Jesus responds in 1017 of of Luke, and he says that he saw Satan falling from the sky. And in Colossians chapter 2, we read that Jesus at the cross has disarmed all rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. At the cross, Jesus overcomes all rulers, Satan and all of his dominion, and he triumphs over them. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 20, this is kind of one of those passages that uh, many interpreters come on to different sides, but it, it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. I believe that's the church age that we live in right now, because Jesus in Luke says, I saw Satan fall. He then will say in another part of the text, Satan is the strong man which has been bound by Jesus. So now Jesus can come and proclaim the gospel. And now we see during the church age, Satan has been bound and the gospel goes forth to the nations. Now being bound doesn't mean that he doesn't have influence. He's not able to do anything. But he's not able to restrict the advancement of the gospel. Which is what we see as we go into the book of Acts. We see the church goes, they preach, persecution comes. And then what happens? The church goes away? No. 
the church spreads the gospel all the more. In fact, we keep reading, 3,000 came, 5,000 came, more and more and more were added to the number. Despite the persecution, the gospel advances all throughout the world. That's different than the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, I mean, you see awesome revivals like Nineveh, that's the Assyrians. That's cool. Not a lot of other really big revivals, though. But in the New Testament, because Satan has now been bound, meaning unable to restrict the advancement of the gospel, it goes forth. And God's kingdom is proclaimed in all of the earth. And we go forth with the knowledge of Revelation 16. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and great earthquakes, such as there had never been been since man was on the earth so great was that earthquake the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and god remembered babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath what we have in in revelation babylon is pictured as the kingdoms of the world it's pictured as the world's kingdom that's satan's kingdom and throughout revelation we see that kingdom will fall and at the end of the book we see because of what Christ has done, establishing the kingdom and the gospel going forth, that one day Christ returns and there'll be a new heavens and new earth. And that kingdom will fill this new earth. And only those who have believed in Jesus Christ and submitted to the rule of God will be on that earth for all of eternity. So that's, that's the message that we have of the gospel. That there is a God who rules over all the earth. He rules supreme and none can thwart his plans. And he is working for the very return of his son Jesus so that his kingdom will one day come and fill the entire earth. And when we get that, we have peace and we have hope at all times. And it's seen in three ways. We repent, just like Daniel calls for King Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says, turn from your ways, repent. The first understanding that we have when we know that God rules supreme is that we repent and we say, God, I have sinned against you. You rule. We praise. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar does. He praises him. Doxology. This is amazing. Look at what our God has done and look at what he's doing. And we proclaim. Just like what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. This is the message for all people. What does Jesus tell us? Go into all the world. Proclaiming the gospel, making disciples of all nations, of all tribes, of all languages. Revelation 7, we see one day there will be people of all tribes, of all nations, of all languages gathered around the throne. Why? Because when the people of God understand that our God rules, we're not going to move inward, but we move outward because we know no matter what happens in this world, no matter what they take away from us, no matter what threats they bring, the gospel will advance. God's rule will not be thwarted. None can stay his hand. None can say, what have you done? But his gospel keeps going forth. So we go to Lebanon in boldness and praying that all goes well, but knowing no matter what happens, the gospel goes forth. God's rule advances. And there will be a day when he will return and the heavens and new earth will come and there will no longer be sin ever. And we can rest in that. We can have hope in that. We can have peace in that because that's what Christ has come for us to have and that's the truth of the scripture and so when we look at the cross the cross stands as a symbol of god's reign on this earth that's what it stands for to the world it looks like god has been defeated but those who know the gospel story that it was through that defeat that jesus actually defeats sin death and satan it's the symbol of god's rule 
and his reign here on earth. So I pray you know that. If you don't know that, I pray repent today and believe that Jesus is king. Believe that he rules. Understand that you do not, and just like Nebuchadnezzar, any one of us, our lives can be turned upside down in a moment. And praise God for it. And tell others about the rule of God. I'm going to pray, and we'll go right into communion. Father, God, you rule. God, help us to go beyond just a a cognitive knowledge of that. But Lord, may the truth that you rule, that you rule supreme, that there is none that can stop your hand, that there is none that can stay what you have done. There's none that can resist your will. God, help us to rejoice in that. Help us to rejoice that it's because of how great you are and how powerful you are. That's why we're believers here today. That's how your son Jesus came, that he would overcome sin, death, and Satan. That's how it is that your grace has come into our lives and brought us to an understanding of who you are, that we could believe in you. God, I pray today that as a church we would know that you rule supreme and that we can walk faithfully. And we don't need to know how all the details are going to work out, but we do know how the end of the story works out. And we know that all the details, regardless of our understanding, God, you are working them for your glory and for the good of those who know you and love you. May we rest in that. And God, may we proclaim this message that you rule. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. I'm gonna ask.